1: everything you need to fight the trump administration this is the bill press show live at youtube.com
2: slash the bill press show
0: good morning everyone happy friday it is february 23rd the voice you're hearing may not be a familiar one to you but my name is chris lou and i'm guest hosting for bill this morning and i'm joined by bill's uh, trustworthy executive uh, director slash sidekick peter who is going to Trustworthy, strong, Trusty, trustworthy, the, the, trusting,
3: trust-ish, trust-ish is probably better.
0: So I am thrilled to be here, and we're going to be talking about this all morning. This is my first time uh, guest hosting anything, uh, so it's a little bit of an experiment, so we're going to have some fun this morning. We've got some great guests, There's, uh, as is every morning in Trump World. There's a lot of news, and so a lot of things for us to talk about. Uh, A little bit of background about me, I did uh, 20 years, which is way too long in politics, Uh, worked in the House of Representatives for Henry Waxman, Uh, spent 11 years with Barack Obama, first in his Senate, uh, then in the White House, then finished as the Deputy Secretary of Labor. Uh, I am now a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. I am also a senior advisor at a company called Fiscal Note, which is in D.C., and I will be shamelessly shilling all morning for Twitter, Chris ChrisLew44. And if you like me, please follow me. And if you don't like me, please follow me as well. <laughs>
3: yeah, there you go. Aww. There you go. Well, that's the attitude. Like, it, like me or not, just follow me. Like me, me or care. not,
0: it's all about. And, and I don't want any fake followers. We've seen too much about what those fake followers do. So. That's right. Uh, there's been way too much said about that. So we've got a fantastic guest uh, today, including some good friends of mine who have kindly joined me. Uh, in this kind of uh, initial endeavor.
3: All right, just a couple of other stories making news this morning on a Friday. Robert Mueller is at it again. Special Counsel Robert Mueller filed even more new charges against Paul Manafort and Rick Gates. Now, I had mentioned yesterday that they had filed more charges, but they were going to be sealed and we didn't know what they were about. Well, yesterday, we know exactly what these charges are. A 32-count indictment filed in Alexandria. It includes tax and bank fraud charges so it's only getting hotter for paul manafort and rick gates the noose is tightening it certainly is i mean look you know we're not going to know everything about these guys for a little while longer and we went so long without having any kind of um uh movement from robert Mueller, right and people were saying, oh, God, what's happening? Maybe it's falling apart. No, no, no. He's just taking his time, methodically making his plan, and putting it out there. So uh, more bad news for Paul Manafort and Rick Gates yesterday. While we're talking about the legal front, this story is wild. Missouri doesn't have a governor anymore. <laughs> Their governor, Eric Grayton, was indicted on felony, felony, invasion of privacy. Now these come from a 2015 affair, which he had recently admitted to, and he threatened the woman that he had an affair with, with releasing a nude photo of her, taken while she was blindfolded and her hands were bound against her will, he took this photo, and they said that he shared this photo with other people.
0: The audience can see me nodding right now or shaking my head. I mean, in dismay. Let me ask you, Peter. What's the likelihood that you think he serves out his entire term? Oh, I think he's done. Really? I do think he's done. Republican I mean, legislature I, in Missouri. I think that the
3: affair uh, was not great, but he would have survived. <laughs> he, would, he would have survived the affair, right? Politically, wasn't great, but he would have survived the affair. But this is a story that is uh, not only creepy. I mean, like I said. It's a felony, yeah. and this isn't something that happened when he was in college. This isn't something that happened when he was a really young man that that, that maybe could claim he didn't know any better. This happened barely three years ago. <laughs> this was 2015. So he knows better, and they're going to probably—I I think this is probably the end of the road for Eric Greens, who was a rising star for the Republicans.
0: Not a youthful indiscretion.
3: Exactly. your radio
0: on tv and online this is the bill press show welcome and happy friday Uh, my name is chris Liu, and i'm guest hosting for bill press this morning Uh, i'm here with bill's uh uh, executive producer peter and we are having a great time we're only five minutes in my first time guest hosting and so we're just gonna have a little fun to this morning
3: let me just first of all say welcome uh, it's your first time hosting. I'm sure it won't be your last. <laughs> um,
0: Peter, we're only five minutes in. Let's, uh, let's famous wait. <laughs> last words. I'll
3: give you a little while longer to get your bearings then we'll get going. But welcome, man. I'm glad to have you in the host chair. This it, will be fun.
0: This is fun. And I will tell you, and, and um, you know, look, I, I spent 20 years in government, uh, worked in all three branches, have been uh, spent way too much time uh, doing politics. And one of the reasons when I left the administration, I didn't leave the administration, they asked me to leave on January 20th. Um, was uh, a desire to speak out more. And I think over the last uh, 13 months or so, we have seen changes in our country. And a lot of people like me who were uh, going to fade off onto the sidelines decided to speak out more actively. And I appreciate uh, Bill and Peter for giving me this opportunity to talk about the issues of the day. But some issues that matter to me as well. And I will also say that um, I think the, the, the TV viewers can see that I'm an Asian American, um, and I've always made the case that there aren't a lot of people that look like me on TV or on radio, and it's an important voice that needs to be heard. So I just want to thank Bill again uh, for giving me this opportunity. Uh, and I will shamelessly shill again. Uh, you can follow me at chrislu44. So one of the icebreaker questions that I'm going to ask all three of our guests, since this is my first time guest hosting anything... Uh, is something that you have done recently, something you've tried recently, that you've always wanted to do uh, and only recently done, uh, and how it turned out. And that could be uh, something you've uh, – a new hobby you want to take on or some food you want to try. So I'll start with Peter. What Anything oh, recently? Oh, God. I
3: live a fairly boring life, Chris. I'm not going <laughs> to lie to you. The thing that I did recently that I haven't done in a long time is I've recently gone to bed before t- 11 p.m. Uh, which I got to tell you sleep pretty damn good. Pretty damn good. Sleep is
0: good. Although how I w- boring is that answer? Well, no, I- that's not a bad answer. Although in Trump world, you know, if you go to bed at 11 o'clock and you sleep in, you miss a lot of news that happens <laughs> that's overnight. True. That's true. Uh, so look, we're, we're both on Twitter. Peter, do you want to plug your own Twitter? Sure. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Peter Ogburn at
3: Peter Ogburn, but I would highly encourage you follow Chris instead.
0: But <laughs> let me ask you, and I, so Peter, I do follow Peter. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about Twitter because it is such a great medium for getting news out there, and, and obviously it's the president's favorite medium uh, of oh, choice. Don't remind me. Peter, how often do you tweet a day? I don't tweet that often. i got to be honest with you. I'll tell you, uh,
3: talking about the experiences that I that I right. recently took up, uh, towards the end of
0: last year, I got off of Twitter. Yeah, I know some other people that have done that as well. I was
3: done, and I, I deactivated my account. They, they say you have to wait 30 days before they completely get rid of your account altogether, right? But I got off of Twitter. And I got to tell you, it was awesome. It was awesome. I I, I get so, uh, the barrage of news is just too much sometimes. And I feel like I don't have to look at it as hard as I used to. But the one thing that I will say is I was off of it for, I think it was about two months, two and a half months or so, where I just wasn't looking at Twitter. Uh, and I downloaded it again because I, I I probably should use it some for work stuff. But I have to say, I've completely rewired my brain with how I look at Twitter. Because I used to, anytime I got bored, anytime there was a lull in a conversation, anytime you know I wanted to like tune something out, I just go to Twitter and right? like and mindlessly scroll. And when you are not doing that, you realize how much time <laughs> you waste. Just looking at sometimes good thoughts from people, right? Like people put some good information out there. But a lot of times it's just like a lot of people just killing time. No,
0: I know. You know, look, I I, I know other people that have done that as well. And I've thought about taking a Twitter timeout as well. Uh, Although I will tell you when I love Twitter, when it's something like the Grammys or the Super Bowl and people are live tweeting their reactions and it's hilarious. Yeah, no, I'll
3: give you that. That was... I did during the Super Bowl. uh, I I didn't watch the Super Bowl. I was just following it on Twitter, basically. (laughs) Seriously. Seriously. I didn't watch it. I just followed it on Twitter. Uh, And it's nice when, like, you get a ton of people all sharing the same experience. Who are very,
0: very clever and and coming up with wonderful quips along the way. Um, All right. Well, look. uh, We will be discussing uh, Twitter, I'm sure, throughout the day because – uh, if past is any guide, uh, the president during executive time today. Yeah, let's see. It's
3: about that time I, 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 for him we'll, to start. Yeah, will
0: unquestionably start uh, saying something. Uh, God, the tweet I loved yesterday with the one where he said, I never <coughs> said I want to put guns in schools. And then he then proceeded to explain how he wants to put guns in schools. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what we're living in.
0: That, that is the world we are living in. And he called, I think he called <coughs> Wayne LaPierre and uh, other members of the NRA – Uh, patriots, uh, you know, and we're going to be talking a lot about guns today. So let me look. Let me give everyone a little rundown of who you're going to hear from today. We have some fantastic guests, and then I want to make sure we get to a couple other news items that are not touching on our guests. So at 730, we're going to have uh, Eugenio Weigand, who is the Associate Director for Gun Violence Prevention at the the Center for American Progress. Uh, They're doing some fantastic work uh, before the tragic Parkland shootings but uh, will be um, have a lot of thoughts on, let's um, just say, the half-assed measures that that Trump has put forward, which he now seems to be backing away from. Uh, at 8 o'clock, we have Austin Evers. Austin is the executive director of American Oversight, uh, which is one of the groups that is trying to hold the Trump administration accountable. Austin and his folks are really doing uh, the Lord's work in you know filing FOIAs and lawsuits and kind of shining a spotlight on a lot of the practices that are happening during this administration. Uh, Each one individually that would have caused a series of oversight investigations had they done, had it happened during the Obama administration. So I'm looking forward to having Austin in. And my special, special guest uh, at 830 is uh, my good friend Tom Perez. Uh, Tom and I go way back. Tom was the secretary of labor during the Obama administration, second term. I was his deputy secretary, so Tom and I were in the trenches together for three years together. Um, and I reached out to the DNC when I knew I was guest hosting, asked them if they could provide a guest, uh, and they gave me Tom, and it's going to be fun to be spend a little time with him. It is also—we're about to hit the one-year anniversary of his time uh, at the DNC. Uh, there are lovers, there are haters out there, and I think it's important to hear from Tom about what he's done over the last year, what lessons have been learned, uh, and what this— uh, hopefully this blue wave looks like in 2018. So before we get to these uh, guests, uh, a a few things that have been on my mind lately. It it is remarkable in Trump world how fast the news turns. And obviously the Parkland shooting has, um, obviously for good reason, has captured uh, the nation's imagination in terms of what is possible on gun violence, but also in a very depressing way, shown us uh, the powerful forces that have stopped this along the way. You know, I, I will say, having worked with Barack Obama for 11 years, one of uh, the most moving times I have ever seen him was after Newtown. Um, he has um, um, teared up at multiple times talking about those kids that were shot uh, in that school. And, you know, back in 20, late 2012, 2013, when that tragedy happened, I thought that was the moment which we would finally take action, and we didn't. And I think, you know, I am am hopeful that this is a turning point, uh, but I feel like I've seen this movie way too many times.
3: I agree with you on on a lot of that. I I remember everything about when Newtown happened, which was just over five years ago. I remember when I first uh, read about it. I remember uh, seeing Barack Obama speak about it and tearing up. I remember... Listening uh, to Wayne LaPierre give his uh, speech where he uttered for the first time the now infamous words, the only thing that could stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, which are words that still live on today that a lot of the, the gun rights advocates use. I, I remember everything about that, and I remember the disappointment, the crushing disappointment when it finally hit me, oh, crap, we're not going to do anything yeah. on this. And, you know, you compound the uh, compassion of Barack Obama, who stood in front of the nation uh, and and wept as he talked about this, with Donald Trump, who uh, did not meet with the families because the families would not meet with him when he went to Florida. He met with the first responders and the medical team, and when he did— he was grinning and giving a big thumbs up and parading around the hospital as if to say, I think we even at one point said, I wasn't going to come here, but I just felt like I really needed to come. It was, again, it was all about him. Yeah. Right. And I, I do have to say, though, I do feel that we are at a moment now, and I feel that things are different. And I felt that a little bit when I saw all the kids coming out and marching and leaving school and going to state capitals and coming here to Washington, D.C. to protest and having lions in front of the White House. I had that feeling of, like, this is a little bit different. This is a little bit different. The key is, can we keep it going? But for me, uh, the real change came with the CNN town hall on Wednesday night when I saw an arena full of people who this was their issue yeah and anybody that was opposed to getting something done on gun violence i mean i could have sat and watched these students just dunk on marco rubio all night long and they wouldn't have gotten tired of it no
0: and i look i i i i'm gonna use half-ass a lot and today i mean i look i i think where rubio finally came out And saying he would support raising the age to buy an assault rifle to 21 was half-assed. I give Rubio ultimately a little bit of credit for showing up, because Rick Scott did not. But, and Peter, I take your comments to heart. Um, I was struck watching CPAC, and I Never want to waste any of my time watching CPAC. <laughs> yeah, I,
3: I cannot discourage you strongly enough from watching. No, CPAC. but you know, it,
0: and again, I don't. I'm not going to play Wayne Lopp here. He gets more than enough time at CPAC. You could watch NRI TV if you just want to. Amen. You know, you know, you, you, you want to fry your brain. Amen. Um, <laughs> but you 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 hear the passion that Barack Obama not only after Newtown, Charleston, all of the tragic shootings that happened under his watch, and you sort of see what people in the Trump administration are saying and. And yeah, they're talking about bringing America together. I want to play a couple clips from, uh, from Mike Pence about bringing America together. But when he does that and talks about keeping schools safe, he never talks about guns at all. Let's just play a couple clips there.
1: President Trump and our entire administration will continue to take strong action to make our schools safe and to give law enforcement and our families the tools they need to deal with those struggling with dangerous mental illness.
3: It's a very clear narrative that they're building with talking points from the NRA. Yeah. Uh, It's not a gun issue. It's a mental health issue.
0: I also love, I mean, two things about that clip I'm using. Didn't say a single thing about guns. And then when he says, I'm going to keep school safe, I think you hear one lone person cheering. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that gives you a sense about uh, the commitment of the folks at CPAC uh, to this issue. Uh, You know, and look, we're going to spend a lot of time at 730 talking about guns, but- um, a couple other just wacky things came out yesterday. There was the uh, – uh, you know, Trump continues to talk about the answer to um, uh, people with guns in schools is we should give everyone a gun, um, which is just kind of goofy. And somebody on Twitter made the point, like, if if uh, one of my kids hits another kid with a stick, the answer is not to give every kid a stick and have and, – and let them just wail on each other.
3: Uh, yeah, and also uh, what, I, what I thought was uh – damning to their entire argument yesterday was there was a report we know that at the school in florida there were armed security guards right we knew that that was there and the broward county sheriff came out and said there were people there with guns they did not go confront the shooter they never went in yep and they never went
0: into the school and we now know that the deputy was uh, also suspended as well. Um, so I, I want to play a couple clips. One is um, uh, Trump talking about gun-free zones and his view about uh, what that actually means. It's an interesting analogy.
4: A gun-free zone
3: to a killer or somebody that wants to be a killer, that's like uh, going in for the ice cream. That's like, here I am, take me. Oh,
0: God. Donald Trump does know a lot about ice cream. He gets that double scoop. I'd he gets dessert. the extra scoop. That's <laughs> yeah. right. That's he, right. He See, said, he's talking
3: in terms he right. can
0: understand. He could have said it's like a well-done steak with ketchup, and we would have understood that analogy <laughs> like as well. Like wine by the spoonful. Like That's wine right. by the spoonful. But, you know, and again, I look, we're going to have a gun expert who's going to talk to us about the problems with disarming people. But um, we have another clip from an FBI agent who I think highlights, um, I think, one of the real possibilities here when you give everyone a gun in a school.
1: Law enforcement tend to not want private citizens or, uh, or the innocent civilians to be armed because the problem is you could have what we call blue on blue shootings where you have a teacher who has a gun and is taking action and law enforcement is coming in and that teacher is not going to have a vest that says police or anything like that. So it's going to be very difficult for law enforcement officers to differentiate who's the suspect and who's the good guy trying to take action.
0: You know, and this is an important point. As I mentioned at the outset, I served as the Deputy Secretary of Labor. Within the Department of Labor, we have inspector generals um, who do investigations. They also carry guns. And so we often did drills for active shooter, um, if, if there's an active shooter situation. And I remember going to our inspector general once and basically saying, hey, you know, while law enforcement is in there, do you all help out because you have guns, you have rifles? And they so, no, that's actually the worst thing you should ever do mm. because then you have more people walking around with guns, more people firing at each other. It gets very confusing along the way. Their protocol, uh, at least in our agency and I expect in other agencies, is you know, unless there is a clear situation where they can take action and they can do it in a way that distinguishes them from a potential shooter, they hold back as well. They are as much... Um, uh, they go into their safe areas as well. They don't engage because I think that is as problematic as well. Um, you know, So, look, we're going to have a gun expert that's going to talk a little bit more about this.
3: You know, I, I, I think I every time that this happens, every time that we have this gun debate or every time that there's a shooting or anything like that, I, I think of the Onion headline, which was originally published in 2014, And has probably been the most recycled onion headline that uh, has ever happened in the history of the publication, which just says, no way to prevent this says only nation where this regularly happens, (laughs) right? And so uh, there was a a great moment at the uh, CNN town hall on Wednesday night in Florida where Marco Rubio talked about the assault weapons ban, and he said, no, we had an assault weapons ban, and it didn't work. There were loopholes, and people found the loopholes, and it didn't work. And Ted Deutsch, the congressman who represents the area uh, of Parkland, Florida, stood up and he said, look, I know this isn't a debate, and I'm not going to try and steal your thunder and steal from your time, but I do have to say, you are an elected official. This is your job to fix those loopholes. Assault weapons ban didn't work the first time around? Guess what? You could fix it. They were loopholes the first time around? Guess what? You can fix it. Mm-hmm. That is what we pay you to do. And it's it was a real, I think, turning point, not just for me, but for a lot of people who are watching. I think the kids get it. These guys, these politicians are not meant to be held up on some uh, Mount Olympus as some untouchable force, they're there to do some work. And they're there to do some work for us. They're there to do some work for those kids. And the way that they confronted these kids, uh, the, or the, the way that the kids confronted these politicians, they confronted them in a way that no other journalist has ever done because I think a lot of journalists have to like preserve that relationship. They want access later on. They, I don't want to say they suck up to them, but they suck up to them. And these kids are just like, screw that. We elected you to do a job. You're either going to do it or we're going to find a way to get you out of office. And if Marco Rubio wants to stand up there and say, oh, well, we can't have an assault weapons ban because the last time we did it, there were loopholes. Guess what you can do?
0: You can fix it. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think it's one of the striking contradictions between that CNN town hall and CPAC yesterday. And, you know, Wayne LaPierre's remarks might have been well received within that room, but he is moving The Republican Party further and further away, not only from the mainstream of where American thinking is, but really from where the young people in this country who are going to uh, cast uh, votes in the next couple of years are. And so it is um, it's striking where that disconnect is Um, with the the next couple of minutes before we uh, move to our first guest. I just want to touch on a couple of things. And and again, it's hard in Trump world because the the news moves so fast. Obviously, when you have a breaking story like the Parkland shooting that dominates the news. But go back and remember a little over a week ago what we were talking about. We were talking about Rob Porter, the staff secretary at the White House who had lost his security clearance, uh, well, who had never got a security clearance, um, and then was, um, w- was run out of the White House for a domestic abuse allegations. Uh, I'd say allegations. I think were, there was a protective order, so um, a restraining order. So. Um, you know, we have uh, uh, issues about whether John Kelly had been forthcoming about it. Uh, why is Jared Kushner still trying to get to do Middle East peace while he does not have a security clearance? We were talking about uh, Scott Pruitt flying first class because he is uh, too afraid of being confronted by. Uh, Other people, and apparently, I I guess the people in first class are a little nicer than the people are in coach and most airplanes. Uh, We have the uh, David Shulkin, the VA secretary who had a little bit of a European boondoggle and took some free tickets to Wimbledon. These were all the things we were talking about a week ago. And there was a remarkable story in The Washington Post over the weekend where it quoted a White House staffer saying, that the Parkland shooting was a reprieve. That's the word, a reprieve from the ethics scandals that had been engulfing the Trump White House. And so a tragedy in which uh, 17 people are killed is seen as a political winner in some ways for the Trump administration. Certainly, I'm not saying in any way that uh, that, uh, that that they were cheering this in any way. But when a school shooting deflects the press attention from bad news... Um, that shows us about where we are, not only in the media cycle, but how easy it is to forget about all of these things that continue to pile up on a day-to-day basis in this administration. And so, um it's exhausting to try and keep up with this stuff.
3: And I go back and forth, right, whether or not I think that it's by design, or whether it's just that they're 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 inept.
0: I definitely think that it also points to the moral failings of this administration. The lack of empathy is really astounding and unmatched, I think. Oh, well, you know, you may have talked about it in, in previous days. The uh, president, when he did his session with victims and he had his.
5: I hear you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. he
0: had a note card that we now know that Hope Hicks had uh, written his talking points uh, of things he should say. And number five was I hear you that the leader of the free world, the ostensible, we'll say the ostensible leader of the free world, has to be reminded to say or to project, I hear you, to victims of a school shooting. He has to be reminded about empathy. Uh, is pathetic. Yeah.
3: No, I mean, that that's who he is, right? That's who he is. It, it, right there written out, plain as day, in black and white, we saw who Donald Trump was, right? You have to be reminded— to be human. Yes. And to show some form of not just empathy, but like understanding or, or or kindness, right? Like it's just he lives in Trump world. He lives in Trump world. And he has to be reminded that other not not everybody else lives in Trump world, and therefore you have to actually uh act like the president to those people as well. So, like, do I think that it's by design or do I think that it's just total ineptitude? I I typically think that it's more just general ineptitude. I really do. Like, I don't think he's Machiavelli. I don't think he's very smart. I I don't think that he has a grand plan to keep the country confused while he acts out um,
0: some of the uh, 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 more nefarious plans. Uh. I... I As a as a tangent before we get to our first guest, I just want to say, I mean, going to Peter's point about Trump world. I don't know if you saw this clip yesterday about Trump talking about violence in movies. Did you all see this? And he's talking. And he says, you know what? Maybe we ought to have a rating system uh, that looks at that 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 is based on the amount of violence in movies. And you wonder in Trump world has he ever gone to a movie theater? Has he ever had to sort of make a That's decision? That's a great question. Has he ever had to take, well, we know that he, I look, believe me, I've yet to see a, a photo of Trump and Barron doing anything other than walking to a helicopter together with, Ah, uh, Baron, unfortunately, looking very uncomfortable in a suit. Uh, has he ever taken Baron to a theater and said, "Hey, what does PG mean? What does PG thirteen mean?" The <laughs> idea that he he's he thinks he's come up with a rating system for movies, a system that has been around since nineteen sixty eight, is pretty remarkable and shows, I, I think, his disconnect from where uh, real people are.
3: Yeah, and it's also just like, you know, the whole
0: video games are violent, movies are violent.
3: <laughs> I mean, that's an old argument that i've heard since the 80s which has kind of sort of gone away i
0: think he'd be surprised to know that tipper gore was on that bandwagon before he was even there (laughs) yeah right that's right (laughs) Uh, and, and then uh the other thing that i thought was amusing was the ted cruz comment at cpac that democrats are the lisa simpson listen and republicans are the rest of the simpsons first of all. I think Marge Simpson is in our camp as well. A hundred percent. Marge has gone on record on the Simpsons. I'm a lifelong Simpsons fan. Marge is a bleeding heart liberal. She has talked about it on
3: the show. I just want to be
0: put that out there. And let's not put Maggie in there, okay? We don't really know where Maggie is. We don't know where she was. So who are we left with?
3: Homer, who's an idiot, and Bart, who is constantly getting in trouble for doing things that he shouldn't do. I mean, what is that? And I also, I've talked about this before on the show. Clearly, we touched a nerve here, right? (laughs) I've talked about this on the show. Every time that one of these politicians grabs a hold of something that I love, it makes me question whether or not it was ever even good to begin with. I am a lifelong Simpsons fan. I think the Simpsons are great. I think the Simpsons are groundbreaking television. And when I hear that Ted Cruz loves the Simpsons, I think to myself, "Maybe maybe I don't love the Simpsons like I think I do.
5: He may love it, but it's questionable as to whether or not he gets it.
0: He
3: clearly doesn't get
0: it.
5: Exactly. He clearly so doesn't get Simpsons it. The Simpsons are good,
0: Peter. Uh, the Simpsons are good. Thank you, Rick. Princeton educated, Harvard Law School educated guy tries to act like a man of the people and botches the cultural reference. As a former staffer for way too many people, <laughs> you always tell your boss, if you don't know this, then don't, don't, go don't go there. Don't go there. Don't go there. All right. We'll be back shortly. It's Chris Liu, guest hosting for The Bill Press Show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips
1: from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show.
0: Welcome back. Welcome back. It's Chris Liu guest hosting The Bill Press Show. It is an honor to be here. Uh, I hope folks will follow me on Twitter, Chris lou 44. Uh, hope you like The uh, Bill Press Show on Facebook, facebook.com slash Bill Press Show streaming video on youtube.com just look for the bill press show you can also follow the show on twitter uh at bp show uh peter has anyone been tweeting at us this morning
3: yes indeed get a couple of tweets at bp show at bp show uh we were (laughs) talking this is not nice but i'm gonna read it anyway okay this was about we talked about Donald. not nice about
0: me or not nice about donald trump
3: not nice about donald trump okay i have yet to see anything not nice about you (laughs) online anywhere
0: chris you could, uh, you don't want to read that to me with 90 more minutes in the show. do not worry. that's deflating for my confidence. We have so.
3: we haven't gotten any, but this was not very nice about Donald Trump. Uh we were talking about his love of ice cream and he gets the extra scoop. Someone said his mafia nickname should be Fat Donnie Two Scoops. <laughs> I, that has a real ring to it. Frankly, (laughs) Uh, on the uh, minimum age for buying an AR-15, you call it half-assed. Phil says, quote, Rubio or anyone else supporting raising the minimum age for buying an AR-15 isn't even half-assed. It's not even quarter-assed. It's a crumb that if done, it will give the NRA a, quote, we did something talking point. So uh, there you go. Find us on Twitter at BP Show with your comments on any topic at any time. One more uh, one more comment from Joey Olivia just says, hey, Republicans, you are supposed to work for the citizens of this country, not CEOs, corporations, or the NRA. Time to vote them
0: out. 100% agree. Well, let's talk about half-assed gun measures right now. <laughs> We've got a special guest, Eugenio Weigand. He is the Associate Director for Gun Violence Prevention at the Center for American Progress. Uh, you can follow him or his organization at uh, cap Action Guns. Is that right? Cap That's Action correct. Guns, Eugene. Thank you for being here.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, I'm going to try not to devolve into a conversation about The Simpsons, although we were doing that during the break. Um, we were talking earlier. Peter and I were talking earlier. Um, you've seen way too many of these incidents. We've all mm-hmm. seen too many incidents. Do you think something has fundamentally changed in the wake of the Parkland shooting?
5: I mean, I do see certain movement, and this is thanks to the students. I think that they have done a tremendous job at raising their voice. Um, um, you know, we saw a recent poll uh, as well after the shooting that showed that 97% of the Americans support universal background checks. That is the highest we've had, uh, we have seen in, in, the, in the past years. Also, assault weapons ban is supported by 67% of the American population after the shooting. Again, this is the highest we've seen. Uh, you know, this says that, you know, people in the United States have had enough of not only shootings but the overall levels of gun violence in this country. Let's not forget that 90 people die every day because of a bullet and more than 200 are injured.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's unfortunate. I was looking at the photos of the uh, flag at half-mast on the White House, and I thought to myself, we should just leave it at half-mast because there's going to be another shooting uh, by the time we raise it back up there. So, you know, there have been a bunch of measures that have been discussed. I've characterized them as half-assed, but I'd love to hear from an expert about how real some of these are. raising the age of to buy an assault rifle from 18 to 21
5: it's just a very little start and it's not enough um, you know but it, it is a start but we think that you know the overall the levels of um, assault weapons should be banned uh, they are commonly used on mass shootings they have been used on the Orlando shooting they were used in Connecticut and Sandy Hook they are the weapons that they the shooters select to conduct these types of mass shootings and they you know we've seen this mass shooters of all kinds of ages over 21 as well
0: you know i was i was struck um i i went back and looked at the ages of the shooters and some of the recent massacres involving the ar-15 las vegas 64 years old mm-hmm. orlando 29 years old sutherland springs a church shooting 26 san bernardino 28. all of them would have still gotten their assault rifles if we had raised the age
5: that's correct that's why we think this is a very limited measure um uh, and we are you know supporting the 67 uh, percent of americans that agree with us that assault weapons should be banned
0: yeah you know it is striking on assault weapons in general i mean we had the assault weapon ban in 94 that then lapsed under the bush administration I, i i think on virtually every single social issue in this country right now we can safely say we have moved forward in the last 25 years except on
5: guns we seem to have moved Backwards. God, that's so and true. That's that's absolutely true. Um, during the, the ban, we did see levels of lethality on mass shooting much lower than we saw afterwards. Although crime did, their crime did not change so much, the level of lethality on mass shootings did increase after the ban.
0: Uh, all right, so let's look. Some of the other uh, ideas, uh, bump stocks. This was something that got a lot of attention after Las Vegas. Uh, you know, there was a sense that this could be done there would be bipartisan support for getting it done. Uh, it didn't. Um, now Trump has asked uh, the F, um, the Department of Justice to take a look at it. How significant is that? And do you have a sense as to whether that can be done through regulation or whether that requires legislation?
5: That can be done through uh, legislation. Some states have already done so. Um, uh, but I, I think it could also be done through uh, executive action. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, this is just only a, a, a small... Improvement on the overall regulations that we're looking for. Um, you know, so the the bump stocks are banned, but if people can easily acquire a semi-automatic rifle, they can still, you know, create a lot of damage or uh, have a lot of people killed in, in mass shootings.
3: You know, the thing to me about the bump stocks is, I, I remember uh, October first when bump stocks sort of became the topic. Yeah. The topic mm-hmm. after Las Vegas. Uh, Because this is what that man used uh, to shoot uh, all those people. And even Republicans were saying, we've got to get rid of bump stocks. Mm We've got to get rid of bump stocks. We've got to get rid of bump stocks. Here we are, six months later, and nothing has been done. Now, Donald Trump has said, oh, we're going to get that done here very soon. Right? They had six months to do it. Mm Mm-hmm. They had six months to get this done, right? when they want to move quickly, they can move quickly, and again, they've had a majority in the Senate and the House, and they have the White House, so they can't ha they don't have anybody to blame but themselves. Why haven't bump stocks already been banned
5: Two things in this in this front there are there has been some improvement, but at a state level okay you know states uh like in many other issues take the lead on this um and it's not surprising to me that Trump or other Republicans have not done so. Let's not forget that they receive an enormous amount of money from the National Rifle Association. Yeah. So that to me, it's not surprising that Trump did not mention guns on his speech after the shootings, and it's not surprising that he has not done something more uh, uh, on regulation of guns overall. No. Uh,
0: you know, all right, so the, the, the big elephant in the room is background checks. Mm-hmm. And, and Trump has said he supports stronger background checks uh, Cornyn has a bill right now mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. background checks, which is really about ensuring that states report the information to federal authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, background checks mean a lot of different things. And let's not forget that you know, one of the bills that Trump signed very early in the administration was to roll back an Obama rule um, on letting, um, on, 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 that would have uh, prevented or limited, certainly, people um, with mental disabilities from um, owning guns what do you think is possible in the space and, and not only what's possible what's meaningful as well
5: so um again this is a, this is uh the bill that they're been trying to introduce it's important but it's not enough because it does not cover the gun show loophole it does not cover sales online which is which is i think what should be done and what would work is that every single gun transaction uh is conducted a background check is conducted on every single gun transaction and the 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 bill that trump is saying does not cover that. It only covers the improvement of records, which every state should do.
0: So I was, what, one thing along those lines that I was struck by, and you hopefully can answer this, in the state of Florida, it is easier to buy an assault rifle than it is to buy a handgun because the handgun age is 21, but for assault rifles at 18, there's also a waiting period for handguns that there's not for assault rifles. That is is correct. that right?
5: That you are absolutely right. And, and I,
0: I, again, not that I would ever try to, find logic in gun laws in this country but what's the logic there?
5: I really don't understand the logic there. Um, you know there might be that handguns are used more often on crime and other crime although not mass shootings obviously but that might be the logic behind it. I honestly don't know what the logic is behind those types of
0: uh, Trump <laughs> is now full board on let's arm teachers.
5: Mhm. The, the, I'm I, laughing, yeah.
0: but I would love to hear your thoughts on this one.
5: I mean, 68 percent of the uh, members of the National Education Associ- Association of Education don't agree with that. They think it's a dangerous uh, a proposition. There have been incidents in some states that are already passed that, where teachers leave the gun in the restroom, and these guns have been found by six-year-olds. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there, there have been teachers have accidentally shot themselves with guns that they bring to school. So it's a very, very dangerous measure, and it's based on a lot of myths. This myth that the good guy with the gun will stop mass shootings its just that, a myth. The fact is that out of uh, 163 mass shootings that the FBI uh, analyzed, only one was stopped by an armed individual, and 21 were stopped by people that were unarmed. So that is just a myth that the good guy it, will respond quickly.
3: It's just a talking point.
5: It's they have nothing point.
3: that they can back it up with. We were talking earlier. I remember when Wayne LaPierre said that. It was around Christmas time. Uh, five years ago, mm-hmm. and it it still is something that people hang on to, and it doesn't make any sense. They can't point to anything, any research, any numbers, any data that says this is demonstrably untrue. Now, by the way, on the issue of arming teachers, I actually texted a really good friend of mine who is a teacher mm-hmm. yesterday, and I just texted her the article, and I said, what do you, what do you think about this? She said... Uh, I mean, I honestly value and appreciate those who, like my brother-in-law, do choose to be soldiers. But that's not my role. I chose to be an educator, not a soldier. Please do not try and arm me. Thank you very
5: much. Yeah, and let's not forget the the teacher that appeared on the town hall in CNN that also said that you know she was not she didn't want to. be. This isn't ready.
0: why they get into this. Right, they don't want to be carrying guns. Right. You know, great. I think we have a clip of the president talking about how we should give bonuses to teachers. Let's play that clip.
3: They're not going to walk into a school if 20% of the teachers have guns. It may be 10% or maybe 40%. And what I'd recommend doing is the people that do carry, we give them a bonus.
0: Yeah, so let, let's let's give bonuses. But, you know, I, it's, it's um, teachers have a lot of responsibilities mm-hmm. right. <laughs> already. Uh, and, again, we, we, we played a clip earlier. We don't need to play it again. We had a, pl- a clip earlier from an FBI agent sort of talking about the dangers of people in a shooting situation mm-hmm. where teachers are now starting to engage in the the gunfire and how as law enforcement they can distinguish between uh, mm-hmm. the good people and the bad people which is problematic in so many ways
5: that's it's absolutely right it, there's a i mean it's it's a potential danger that they shoot the wrong persons uh, in during the shooting of Gabby Giffords in 2011 a person with a gun tried to stop uh, the shooting and almost accidentally shot the wrong person so I mean it's it's very possible police officers make mistakes. Uh they have they hit their target on less than 25% of the time and they are trained uh police officers, you know, if we have teachers that percentage might be a lot lower and they might end up hitting the wrong person. You know, when people
0: forget. I mean, it look there, there was an armed guard That's at right. this school. That's right. There were uh you know, there was this shooting at Fort Hood, which was a military installation. So a lot of people holding guns at that point. Uh, the Orlando nightclub, there was an armed guard there.
5: Uh, there were armed guards in Las Vegas. I mean, police officers have been targeted. They're always armed, so they have been, uh, like in Dallas. You know, They target police officers in Dallas, uh, I think it was uh, last year. Um, in this regard, let's not forget that the shooter always has the element of surprise, and he's always gonna take two or three before he encounters um, uh, an, an individual with a, with a firearm. We saw this on the baseball shooting last year with the, with the Republicans. There were three people injured before the, 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 the police was able to, were able to respond to this. So to me, that's not a success at all. When you have uh, three people injured and then a response from an armed individual, that's a failure to me.
0: We are here with Eugenio Weigand, the Associate Director for Gun Violence Prevention at the Center for American Progress. You can follow him at CapActionGuns on Twitter. Eugenia, what do you think is possible? What do you, what do you think is going to happen um, in, in the next couple of weeks? Well, like, like and, I said, and let me ask you a question. Yeah. how are the folks at CAP trying to keep the momentum going on this issue?
5: So we, uh, you know, we have been advocating for uh, background checks for a long, long time. We're going to keep pushing for this. Uh, we're going to create, you know, fact sheets and hand them over. Uh, talking points on assault weapons as well. We are. Uh, con- digging into what has been done, what is the research says to, you know, give the, the facts about uh, this legislation that we are advocating for. Um, um, we're, you know, definitely going to keep working on that, generating our reports, um, you know, pushing on social media, the facts, et cetera.
0: For, for you know, um, and, I, and you all are doing important work and doing that research. Um, I was reading the other day about something called is the Dickey Amendment. Right, that stops that, federal agencies from doing research on gun violence. Right.
5: So we're going to advocate what? for Right, that's Come on. that's yeah, i
0: I'm, I'm actually glad you mentioned it. tell us about the Dickey Amendment. So
5: so the CDC is not does not receive funds to conduct research on gun violence. It's prohibited to receive funds to conduct research on gun violence. It can conduct research on vehicle related deaths. It can conduct research on any other injury but not gun violence. Uh, and that is absolutely wrong in so many, many levels. Uh, You know, the vehicle, we had a crisis on vehicle-related deaths, but then research started coming in. We started regulating cars. We started improving roads. And the level of of lethality on on accidental roads has decreased significantly. That means that we can do the same with guns if we can only get the data, if we can only get the research going. So that's one of the things that, that we actually advocate at CAP, you know, remove the CDC research ban and start giving them money to conduct research on gun violence. We also... Uh, advocate for universal background checks. They do work. 30 million people have been prevented from buying a gun since, since the implementation of background checks. The states that implement background checks everywhere present rates of gun violence much lower than states that do not. So there is evidence that gun laws do work. Um, we also advocate for the assault weapons ban. These weapons have been used very often on mass shootings. And not only that, these weapons are usually trafficked to other countries where they are used on crime as well so we there's a reason to advocate for assault weapons ban uh we obviously advocate that more needs to be done on domestic violence as well close the boyfriend loophole right now uh boyfriends that are uh, aggressive they're not prohibited by law for purchasing a firearm
3: yeah let's go back to the other thing that which by the way but i didn't mean to interrupt but that's something that people have talked about for a long long time that a, a lot of even uh uh gun safety supporters have ignored, right? Like mm-hmm. domestic violence is absolutely an indicator of <laughs> someone being aggressive with a gun.
5: And they usually are um, the previous factor for a mass shooting. Yeah. Uh, the major Actually, the majority of mass shootings in this country occur at homes uh, where four or more people are killed. Usually the, the family members of the house are, are killed. They don't get as much press attention because they're not as public. right? but the majority of mass shootings occur in a domestic violence environment.
0: So I I want to talk a little bit about mental health, which is something Mm -hmm. the 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 boogeyman that uh, Mm -hmm. Trump keeps going back to. We have a clip of Trump Mm -hmm. with a solution on mental health. Let's play that.
3: We're going to be talking seriously about opening mental health institutions again,
4: in some cases reopening.
0: Yeah, all right. (laughs) My friends in the disability community, the idea of institutionalizing people takes us back 30 to 40 years. So let's park that aside for a second because uh, it's nutty as well. How, what, what what can be done on the mental health issues?
5: So first of all, I, I just need to say that people with mental health issues tend to be the victims of gun violence and not the perpetrators. Important point. So there's, a, there's kind of a stigma there going on. In terms of mental health, I agree that every single factor that leads to ev- anyone to commit Mass shootings or atrocities must be addressed, whether that's domestic violence, whether that's bullying in schools, whether that's mental health issues, whether it's, it's terrorism, whether, whatever it is, they all must be addressed. But the common denominator on all mass shootings is not mental health, it's not terrorism, it's not domestic violence, it's the easy access to firearms. And I think that by highlighting these other factors more, they're just pushing the debate on guns away. And I think that's just a political tactic.
0: Yeah. Well. I also point out that in the FY nineteen budget, the Trump administration actually cuts funding for federal mental health. So there's a
5: contradiction, a very important <laughs> contradiction there as well.
0: Um. So Eugenio, we're here with Eugenio Vigen, the Associate Director for Gun Violence Prevention at the Center for American Progress. Uh, you did a, speaking about the easy access to guns, you did you and your colleagues at CAP did a, an important report earlier in February about how the impact of loose gun laws not only affects us here in the United States, but how it affects other countries. Can you talk a little bit about that?
5: Sure. Um, So we did a study, like you said, uh, analyze ATF data, uh, trace data on guns found in crimes in other countries and traced. And we found that a lot of them are traced back to the United States. Just to give you an idea, 70% of firearms recovered in Mexico are traced back to the United States. 98% of firearms recovered in Canada are traced back to the United States, which means that, you know, we are exporting violence as well to other regions of the world. And this has had a tremendous impact. Uh, Mexico had its highest level of homicide during 2017, and more than 66% of homicides were conducted with, with a firearm as well. The The Northern Triangle in Central America, which is Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, is one of the most violent regions of the world. And the significant number of firearms that they use there originates in the United States. And it, what we propose at the end are common-sense regulations that are supported by the U.S. population that would reduce violence in the United States and that would also reduce gun trafficking abroad.
0: And the irony is that we have a president who wants to build a wall to stop violence from coming, he says, from Mexico and Central America into the United States. But he
5: says that while clearly ignoring that, you know, we send a lot of guns to these countries, we are exporting a lot of violence to other countries.
0: Uh, for the listeners and the viewers of this show... What would you like them to do over the next couple of weeks to keep this momentum going? I mean,
5: I I keep thinking about it. Uh, There's elections coming out this uh, this year. Um, Listen to the candidates. Uh, I hope the candidates come up with strong platforms on guns, Um, and you know, listen to them. And you know, this this is a this should gun violence should be a factor on the coming elections.
3: Absolutely, I think it should be the factor. Uh, for a lot of people in the in these coming elections. And also, it's important, I think, that when you have a guy like Marco Rubio who will say one thing in front of a group of mourning students in Florida mm-hmm. and then literally the next day sort of changes his tune, which mm-hmm. which he did, uh, you've got to hold them accountable. You right. have got to hold them accountable. And I think that there's a very interesting movement going on right now. I didn't realize this. There are a lot of businesses out there that mm-hmm. still give money, uh, money and, and uh, but there are a lot of businesses that still align themselves with the NRA mm-hmm. and say, if you're an NRA member, you'll get this percentage discount. off, right. this yeah. kind of discount, which is... Horrifying. Mm, right. I don't understand what that would be all about. Why that would even be. But like, look, you can vote with your dollars too. Mm-hmm. Like, we have we have a little ways to go before we get to the midterm elections. It's closer than a lot of people think, but we got a little ways to go. But what you can do right now, mm-hmm. look at these companies that give breaks to the NRA and say, no, I'm not going to give you my money.
5: Right. I'm right. not going to give you my money until certain measures are um, are, are are conducted. Yeah. You know, be- common sense measures supported by the majority of Americans.
0: Yeah. You know, there's a powerful movement going on right now, as Peter mentioned. Um, uh, people are trying to do boycotts of NRA TV. I think it's mm-hmm. Enterprise Car Rentals now pulled their discounts. Yep. There's some banks that have mm-hmm. now pulled their discounts the as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, Peter, it's an important point. Uh, we've got midterm elections. I think until you can show that we can defeat candidates backed by the NRA, uh, that's an important point. But I think we can also vote with our dollars as well. Right. Uh, so we are heading into a break right now. Uh, let me just thank uh, Eugenio Vigan, the Associate Director for Gun Violence Prevention at the Center for American Progress. Anything you want to plug, you want to, resources, you want uh, our viewers to they, they can
5: definitely come to our website. We have a lot of reports, fact sheets on the measures that we have talking about today, background checks, assault weapons, and, uh, the CDC research ban.
3: And that's important. I mean, look, you're going to face people in your everyday life who are going to disagree with you on this. And a lot of them are armed with things that are not facts, Okay, they are going to have things that they have heard over and over again, like the good guy with a gun stopping a bad guy with a gun. There's no data that supports that. Right. There's no data that supports that. So if you're going to go out there and you're going to have these conversations, you need to make sure you know exactly what you're talking about. That's
0: great. Eugenio, thank you for being here. I hope you'll come back again.
5: Thank you. I will come back.
1: Telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com
2: slash The Bill Press Show.
0: Happy Friday, everyone. My name is Chris Liu, and I am guest hosting The Bill Press Show. Uh, I hope you will uh, subscribe on YouTube, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Uh, You can also follow me, ChrisLiu44, on Twitter. Uh, We've just had an interesting conversation, a depressing conversation in many ways, about uh, gun violence, and we're now going to shift to... Uh, talking about Trump ethics and oversight and investigations. But first, let me flip it to Peter. This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple
3: of other stories making news. We do this every day, Chris. We give an update on where we stand with the Olympics. Because I've got, I'm full on, I'm in Olympic fever mode. I, I, curling? I, you're a curling fan. I'm a curling fan. All right. I can, you know, I'll put it this way. I'll put it this way. I can watch 45 minutes of curling. Nah, it's about it, right? Like, some of these games go on forever. I can't watch that much.
5: 45 minutes actually sounds like a lot. That's higher than most people's thresholds. I'll tell you
3: what. You want to kill three hours? Watch 45 minutes of curling, right? (laughs) Like, it feels like three hours. So where are we in the standings? United States... Still 21 overall medals, 8 gold, uh, 7 silver, 6 bronze. Still Norway way out in front with 13 gold, 13 silver, 10 bronze. They have a total of 36. Germany is right behind them with a total of 25 medals do not look like they're going to catch them. There's not
0: going to really be an yeah, Peter, opportunity. For that you, to, yeah. Why do the Russian athletes get counted in the medal totals as a team if they can't be there as a team? Okay. I, I'm
3: actually glad you asked that question. <laughs> not that I have an answer for you, but I'm going to make one up. No, okay. I'm kidding. I actually, I actually know some of this. So, so a lot of them were uh, – the country was uh, disallowed from the Olympics. They're not allowed to compete as a country. But these athletes that have been training, they can sort of compete as a coalition – Right, it's not. It's not like the way that some of the refugees right. uh, are able to compete. Like their countries don't. They don't represent their countries. But this coalition of athletes from Russia form this coalition that can then compete. Kind of. So you for and I themselves. could form our
0: own coalition. Sure. The Olympics. Should we
3: ever? <laughs> let's see. I'm trying to figure out what sport I'd be good at in the Winter Olympics. Probably curling is the only one. I I can't think of anything else I'd be really great at. Uh, You mentioned the Russians, by the way. A second Russian athlete has been charged or has been found doping at the Winter Olympics. They tested positive for doping. It's weird how this only really happens with Russia athletes.
0: It's so bizarre.
3: Yeah. uh, 168 Russians were allowed to compete as neutrals in the game, which we talked about. And one of them uh, finished 12th in the two-woman bobsled event. It turns out she was doping. And then she finished 12th. I don't really know what kind of action you're going to take against her. She doesn't have any medals to take away or anything like that. But uh, So this was the second medal. Uh, another Russian athlete earlier in the week was found guilty of doping. He was stripped of his bronze medal. Uh, so... You know, if you're not cheating, you're not trying, I guess, is the is, is the motto for the Russians. And, and you
0: know who has landed in, in South Korea? Ivanka is now there, I think.
3: Ivanka is there, and
0: Sarah Huckabee Sanders yeah. is also going to be representing America. Because Ivanka apparently is a winter sports enthusiast. That's what I've heard. And the joke I made on Twitter, she thinks fleecing is a winter sport. <laughs> Fle- I'm, I'm here all week. Yeah, that's,
3: pre- <laughs> that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Uh, I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. Remember that? Toys yes. R Us. That was like a thing that I grew up with when I, was a, when I was a kid. Yeah, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, giant giraffe. Well, Toys R Us announced yesterday they are going to be closing 200 stores. Now, just last month, we talked about how they were doing, going through some major store closings. They announced yesterday 200 more of them will close store closings, layoffs at their headquarters. This could be the end of Toys R Us. And again... One of the things that they even mentioned and even referenced in this statement is, look, people get their toys from Amazon now. They get it online. They don't go out toy shopping. They just get it on the Internet. So uh, I'm not sure how much longer Toys R Us is going to be with us, but that's 200 more stores that are closed.
1: your
0: radio on tv and online this is the bill press show happy friday and welcome to the bill press show i am chris lou it's an unfamiliar voice to many of you but i served in the obama administration for a number of years before that I had done oversight and i am guest hosting this morning and hopefully if i don't completely suck i will get invited back uh, <laughs> i am so grateful To be joined by Austin Evers. Austin is the executive director at American Oversight. Uh, Please do follow Austin and his team at uh, uh, Twitter at WeAreOversight. Austin, welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So, I I started my career uh, doing oversight. I worked for the House Oversight Committee, Henry Waxman, for eight years. Um, When I think about American Oversight, I think about, hey, isn't that what Congress is supposed to be doing?
2: That, I mean, <laughs> ideally, uh, you know, most folks, even with the state of civics education, have heard about the separation of powers or checks and balances. And uh, we saw that. Um, I mean, I really think that the, some of the best examples were what um, Congressman Waxman did. Um, and then we saw it kind of go off the rails during the Obama administration with a series of conspiracy theories backed by the full force of Congress's investigative power. And then the second um, it became a one party town. Um, Congress seems to have lost its appetite for oversight, abdicating its role. And uh, it's actually a fundamental problem um, when you think about how our democracy was meant to operate. Um, It's meant to check itself, and we just have not been seeing that.
0: Well, you all are doing important work in that, and I know you have got started after Inauguration Day. Give us a sense about the issues that you've been focusing on. I mean, it, it literally seems like every day there's several things that you could do oversight on if there were a functioning congressional system. How are you all prioritizing what to look at?
2: Uh, I mean, you're right. It's a challenge on what to prioritize because um, if you look at uh, almost any agency on any given day, there's something you could examine. Um, I guess we start from this premise. Uh, One of the, I think, undersold risks of Donald Trump is that he is such a bright, white light that everyone is drawn to, that people's attention is not on the agencies that are spending the vast majority of taxpayer dollars, they're touching everybody's lives in, in the form of environmental protection or a lack, lack thereof, uh, transportation projects, uh, and you know just uh, following ethical rules. And so what we do is we try to look below the, the the Twitter headlines, the front page of the New York Times, the Washington Post. What's going on at Scott Pruitt's EPA? What's going on at Betsy DeVos's Education Department? And um, are there pieces of evidence that we can use transparency tools to extract, to bring to light, and hopefully um, tell the American public about uh, how their government is really operating? And if we find things like waste, fraud, abuse, violations of, of law or ethics norms, we hope that matters. And we think that um, pulling out black and white evidence will cut through
0: some of the chaff. Peter and I were talking about this earlier, I mean, before the tragic shootings in Parkland a week ago, we were talking about security clearances at the White House. We were talking about Scott Pruitt's uh, propensity for flying first class. We were talking about David Shulkin going to Wimbledon. Uh, I know you all have looked at Ben Carson and his son being involved in planning uh, events in which he has business interests. Um, but you're right. It's it's that bright light. I mean, it, we get distracted by what Trump is doing and obviously by tragic news like Parkland. Um, what do you think? Is it a cultural issue within the or lack of cultural issue within the Trump administration that there seems to be a higher rate of these ethical lapses than I can remember in any other recent administration?
2: I mean, it feels that way to me. Um, I served in the last administration and I can remember feeling like there was a culture where uh, when something difficult would come up, the first question was really, what's the right thing to do? We
0: would have gotten killed, Austin, for the things that they're doing.
2: Um, I agree. Um, and I spent a lot of my time uh, investigating uh, allegations of misconduct. And if there was something there, we, we tried to address it. Or if there wasn't, we tried to bring out the facts that would um, you know, correct the, the allegations. These days, there are so many stories uh, at every different agency uh, in the White House that it does seem to kind of get lost. Um, what we try to do is uh, correct for, I think it, it, is, it is a cultural thing, and it's, it's inherent in the news. People report on and pay attention to what is new today. It is difficult to t- sustain anyone's attention on an ethical lapse at, say, HUD with Ben Carson. What we do is we file uh, FOIA requests to demand documents that we think will show whether or not violations occurred, and those things take time. We can uh, dedicate the time and effort to stick to these things, even if the editors of the New York Times or the Washington Post or Politico can't. So, three months from now, six m- months from now, when we get another dump of seven hundred, a thousand pages of uh, Ben Carson Jr.'s emails uh, with his father introducing him to contractors um, who have business before the agency, you know, hopefully that will become news, and we'll th- we'll see it again. I I think um, it's the idea of oversight is not news. It it requires sustained attention, diligence, pressure, and, uh, you know, not taking your foot off the accelerator.
0: And it is important to understand in this world in which everything Trump hates is called fake news, that these stories are not fake news. Uh, You know, Politico uh, staked out Tom Price taking his first his uh, his charter flights from uh, D.C. to Philadelphia. The work that you all are doing to highlight what is happening at HUD, what is happening at EPA. It's not fake news. Uh, this is shining a spotlight and frankly, you know, this should gall you whether you are a Democrat or Republican. This is a this is an abuse of the trust. This is a waste of taxpayer money. So
2: I come at it uh, not from a fake news perspective, but I come at it as someone who used to defend against oversight requests, help an agency uh, navigate allegations. And the, what, what you do In that context, as you go, you look at the emails, you look at the memos, you talk to the people who are involved, and you find out the real facts. And whatever they are, that's what you have to present. And hopefully, there's nothing there. But if there's a problem, you have to own up to it. What American Oversight does, and what, I mean, a lot of people in the news do, and other organizations uh, do as well, is we go in, and we find that primary source evidence. And uh, we let, frankly, people's words condemn themselves. Um, if it's an email that says, I want to fly first class because I don't like the American public, well, Scott Pruitt should have to own up to that the next time he's in front of Congress. And Donald Trump should have to own up to that next time he goes to voters and says he hires the best people.
0: And it's important that the work that you all are doing has now finally captured the attention of some folks in the Hill. I saw that Trey Gowdy is now going to start looking at uh, Pruitt's uh, travel. Of course, you know, Republicans start doing this when they decide not to run for office. They, they sort of understand
2: a constitutional bucket list. It is. I'm about to go. I've got to do something. And he took that gavel of the oversight committee and did nothing with it for over a year and now is sending letters uh, asking for information about Scott Pruitt. Uh, he's asking for information about security clearances. Um, the problem I have is that, uh, from what I can tell, it isn't backed by any real sustained staff work. And you, you know this well. Yeah. A letter is meaningless unless it's followed up with a call and a meeting, and a briefing, and another letter, and a demand for documents and pressure. I don't know that Trey Gowdy is doing that. And given how these things take time, um, a man who's going to leave town in a few months uh, may not even have enough days left to, uh, to execute this. And if you were an agency responding to one of these letters, I think you'd take into account that your adversary is about to leave. Yeah. Uh,
0: let me ask you about FOIA. Um, this is something that I know well from my days as the deputy secretary of labor. We would get inundated with FOIA requests. Uh, back in those days, it was from right wing groups, uh, and legitimately, look, we get a lot, I and mean, we get legitimate FOIA, requests, we got requests, we get illegitimate FOIA requests. It takes a while to get all that paperwork. Um, talk to me about the challenges um, mm-hmm. and what that means. And I know that you all often have to go and litigate these uh, over these requests.
2: So. Uh... I don't think there's any question that FOIA presents a real challenge to agencies. It, uh, it requires, basically what it does is it gives any citizen the right to see documents inside the agencies that work for them. Uh, and That can include the emails of a Secretary of State, we might have seen that recently, but it could also be uh, the, um, the contracts for uh, someone who got a, you know, uh, a contract to build a wall along the southern border. Um, it really is an opportunity to see the inner workings of the government behind the talking points. Agencies do face an onslaught of requests from media, from citizens, from groups like mine. And um, the way I look at it is this. Number one, transparency is a fundamental American value. This law has been on the books since the 1950s, and it should be celebrated, not uh, denigrated. Uh, Number two, the government has made real investments in technologies that should make this easier. Think about if someone asked you to search your email, your Gmail account, for all your emails with Donald Trump. You would know how to do that. Um, agencies know how to do that, too, and one thing we try to do at American Oversight is draft these requests so that they are easier to execute. Um, ultimately, given backlogs and what we think is probably political interference, we do have to go to court, and uh, what that does is it starts a conveyor belt of documents. Um, a judge says, all right, turn over 1,000 pages a month on this topic to American Oversight, um, and uh, you know agency lawyers and agency staff to start that process. It shouldn't be painful to show your work, um, although I, I am mindful that volume can be a challenge.
3: Also, I, I think you you <laughs> you just said something very interesting. It shouldn't be uh, painful to show your work, but I think the Trump administration has proven that they are not exactly details-oriented. And <clears throat> I, I, my concern is, like, My concern from from the get-go with the Trump administration has been, like, what's really in place to keep these people honest? What's really in place to make sure that they're doing the right thing and not trying to fleece people? As opposed to, well, everybody that we've elected up until this point has been fairly ethical on a lot of... Like, they're they're just like a rule. They're just like a a group of, like, norms. There are a couple of
2: exceptions, but...
3: So that's kind of... Yeah, there are definitely a couple of exceptions. But, like... Is it just they acted like this because that's just been tradition? Or are they acting like this because that's there are laws that keep them in place to do this? And so like what can the Trump administration ignore and what can they sort of And,
0: and let me just add to that and I'll let you answer, Austin. It's it's the fear of public shaming that I think has held back previous administrations from engaging in some of these practices. But if nothing shames you, then and, yeah. and a lot and what and of these things are norms versus laws, I think is a challenge we're sort of finding. Um, it there's a pretty wide runway for them to do whatever they want.
2: So I think it's a balance of all those things. Um, on the public shame, uh, issue, uh, yeah, most uh, most administrations have cared if they get bad headlines every day. This one seems to relish in just being a headline. Uh, one thing I would point out though is that we have not yet had voters go back to the polls, right? Um, at least uh, across the country since Trump's administration took over. I think we'll see whether. Uh, uh, America imposes shame on them. Uh, likewise, I think Congress traditionally has been a source of imposed shame or accountability is really the better word for it. And if you think the Trump administration is getting away with too much, I think a cause of that is the abdication that Congress has has undergone. Uh, we are trying to correct for that. Uh, we are trying to, uh, anytime we see misconduct or mendacity on the part of public officials, we want them to know that we're watching. And what they're doing today is going to be in the news three months from now because we FOIA'd it. Um, We hope that's a corrective. Um, I would imagine um, that the administration, for example, is a little bit more sensitive about first-class travel. Mick Mulvaney uh, just uh, made a very public statement that when he's traveling abroad soon, he'll be flying coach. Um, And I'm sure Tom Price is sitting there uh, thinking about, wow, I really should have just taken Amtrak to Philadelphia. (laughs) Um, So striking the balance is key. I, uh, you know, uh, uh, enforcing the laws that we do have, including just the transparency laws is important. Um, end of the day, do we need to, to ramp up some of the accountability <clears throat> rules? Definitely. Um, we were relying too much on the good faith of our public servants uh, to obey the rules. And I'd love to see both parties, frankly, um, put a ethics and government plank in their platform and really run on it. Yeah.
0: There is um, there's an interesting piece of legislation that uh, Elizabeth Warren and Elijah Cummings have introduced that would basically require, as a condition to receiving presidential transition funds, before Election Day you have to disclose to the voters what your ethics code of conduct would be hmm. um, so the voters can make a decision and, and really kind of uh, put that into their calculation uh, as to who to vote for. Uh, we're here with Austin Evers, the Executive Director at American Oversight. Uh, you can follow him at Twitter. At we are Oversight. I am Chris Liu. I am guest hosting for Bill Press today. You can find me on Chris Forty Four. Uh, we're talking about the work that Austin and his organization are doing in holding the Trump administration accountable. One of the interesting things you're doing is asking for resumes of political appointees. Tell me about that. That one's I I, I whenever you. Do a document dump? I love looking at these people's backgrounds.
2: The resumes have been an unexpected trove for us. Um,
0: (laughs) You mean these people aren't qualified?
2: You know, um, some of them are. Some of them, it's interesting what they choose to highlight as their qualifications, and I'll I'll flag that in a second. But I guess you asked about prioritization uh, before, and one of the things that we've learned is that often when Trump says something, the opposite is true. So we took note when he (laughs) went around the country saying, oh, I'm going to hire the best people. Yes. And then we started hearing stories that they were having trouble recruiting anyone. So what we did is we asked for the resumes of people who uh, got political appointee jobs at various agencies. And these are public records, these are public servants. The things we are finding um, are uh, people who are very young in their careers in senior positions. Uh, There was a story of a young gentleman, I believe he was 25 years old, having a senior position on the opioids task force. Um, Actually,
0: we should say he was the deputy chief of he was the White House liaison and then became deputy chief of staff at the ONDCP, the Office of National Drug Control Policy.
2: Thank you, Chris. I, that is a lot of, uh, of words that I did not. <laughs> I, I was
0: tweeting about that mercilessly, that a 24, 25 year old was essentially dictating drug policy in this country. It's appalling. Great. Uh,
2: and there's a there's another guy um, similar age. Um, his. Uh, Chief qualification uh, to work in government is that he was a legislative correspondent for Jeff Sessions, which to an untrained ear might sound like a serious job, but what it really means is handling the incoming and outgoing mail for <laughs> a senator. Um, he is now a uh, senior official at the at the United States Trade Representative. And we saw a photo of him sitting across the table from the Canadian foreign minister during NAFTA negotiations. One of my chief concerns about uh, Trump's trade deal talk is that uh, we're not fielding our A-team, and Canada and Mexico are. And we are concerned when we see someone who doesn't have the qualifications on their face to have that job. So we we highlight it, we let the administration explain why that person is qualified. Um, And then the one other one that I want to highlight is that there's a woman at uh, the education department who uh, prominently displayed on her resume a qualification for why you should hire her for a job is that she was friends with Roger Stone, and she helped orchestrate the confrontation of Bill Clinton's accusers uh, uh, prior to the second debate in the 2016 election. She is um, clearly competent. She pulled off quite a stunt. Um, but I think it says a lot about um, what you think your job is going to be uh, uh, when you highlight that as a chief qualification to serve in government.
0: Well, and let's highlight a couple other people. The, the woman heading the HUD regional office in New York and New Jersey Planned Eric Trump's wedding?
2: Well, in fairness, they have <laughs> they have defended uh, they've 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 defended that by saying she she may have advised on planning his wedding, but more she wow, was a, she didn't
0: uh, even plan the wedding. She advised on planning <laughs> the wedding. She was a
2: family advisor of some kind. Uh, she started her um, she, you, people may remember her from the RNC. She gave an impassioned speech about how the Trump family is awesome, and then found herself as a senior advisor to Ben Carson, which raised eyebrows because she had no background whatsoever in um, housing policy, and then the eyebrows went further up everyone's head when she was put in charge of the largest uh, HUD region in the country, which, lo and behold, happens to have within it a public housing uh, uh, development that the Trump family has financial interests in. Um, she has been very vocal defending herself, I don't think with much substance other than to say that she has yet to do anything wrong, which just may mean that we haven't caught her. Um <laughs> But uh, strikingly, uh, when we got her resume, uh, not only did it not show housing background, it also showed um, uh, education degrees that she had never received. She spent a semester, and maybe might have been two semesters, at Quinnipiac Law School. She did not graduate, but she lifted, listed Quinnipiac Law School on her resume. She also listed Yale um, because she took a summer class there. Uh, there was no way to tell that those were not full-blown degrees. They were listed under her one degree from uh, a college in Florida. It's just that kind of, um, I mean, there's a lack of qualification. There's a dishonesty. Um, it's definitely not the best people. And you know what? I, I hate to say it. This, this flows from the very top. If you don't have yeah. a president setting the example.
3: That, the, that to me is like all of that to Donald Trump, it doesn't matter. I mean, it it obviously should matter, right? But, like, it just doesn't matter. I'm still trying to wrap my head around the fact that Rick Perry is the Secretary of Energy. And we we remember Rick Perry, probably his most infamous moment was when he was on the debate stage and he said he was going to get rid of three different cabinet positions. And he couldn't remember the third one. And the one that he couldn't remember was the Department of Energy.
2: There was a line in... um it was an on the record comment from his uh, the person who was helping him get through his nomination. It was in the New York Times. Um and it I think the headline was something like a, you know, a learning experience for Rick Perry. And it the, his his it, the person who was bringing him through the process said if you'd asked Rick Perry the day he accepted the nomination for uh, Secretary of Energy what the job was, he'd say chief ambassador for US energy um interests. A week later he probably has, would have said something like uh, it's very important that we protect our nuclear weapons. He had no idea what job he accepted. Um, I, and as, as Trump is fond of saying, uh, nuclear weapons are the ultimate, and I wish we'd gotten one of the best people to yeah.
0: to run that office. So I spend way too much time doing compare and contrast with uh, the people that serve in the Obama administration. I managed the cabinet for President Obama in the first term. Our Secretary of Energy was Steve Chu, who is a Nobel laureate in physics. Our second Secretary of Energy, Ernie Moniz, was a professor at MIT. And then we had Rick Perry, who, what counts as smart, is he wears those kind of smart guy glasses um, that <laughs> apparently don't have the lens in them that kind of gives them a little bit of uh, weightiness. But it is funny, Austin, seriously, that you know, given kind of the amount of stuff that happens, we lose track of these problematic nominees. You know, Just the other day, The um, nominee to head the Indian Health Service dropped out. Okay, so this guy would have been managing a budget of six billion dollars. They went back because apparently the people in the Trump administration don't vet anyone for a job. Um, They went back. Um, He uh, his business that he had ran uh, had filed for bankruptcy, had failed to pay federal taxes. Um, Former bosses said they would not recommend him for another job unless he was closely supervised other people at his former employer did not even remember who he was even though he said he had a supervisory job that's the person who they nominated to run a six billion dollar agency it's
2: it's really striking um, and we see that all over the place we've had uh, I believe two nominees for Navy secretary withdrew um, after issues were um, discovered about them um, but I want to I want to step back and um, to your point of there's so much that we lose track of it I um, actually don't necessarily think that uh, that is true or that it will be true. We just have spent the last few minutes running through a laundry right. list um, and we, we scratch the surface. We scratch oh. the surface, but we know what that point is. This is an administration defined by corruption and defined by patronage, not qualification. That's an easy pitch to make to the public. And then pick your laundry list. You can run through it. What I hope is that the work that we're doing and that the media is doing um, and that other groups and, and the handful of folks up in Congress who are really trying to unearth this stuff, I hope that all that becomes synthesized into a broader pitch to the American public that helps define this administration. Each one of these is, you know, um, a, a straw on the camel's back, um, whatever your metaphor uh, may be. And I don't think you can have spent a year watching the news and monitoring this administration and not take away that fundamental truth.
0: And here's the problem. Uh, Again, whether you agree with this administration or you don't agree, we like the programs that these people have been charged to run, whether it is ensuring that there is good public housing in the New York, New Jersey area, whether it's ensuring that Native Americans get the health care, whether it's ensuring that we solve the opioid crisis. I may not like the political views of some of the people they put in, but I want these programs to run effectively and efficiently because I believe in the power of government to do big things. And when you put people in there who are incompetent, that means the American people aren't getting the benefit of the services that their taxpayers are going to fund. And that's troubling on so many different levels. And it starts to continue to feed this narrative that government doesn't work. Well, government can't work unless you genuinely put the best people in those jobs. And that's not what this president is doing.
2: I I couldn't have said it better myself. And what we are trying to do at American Oversight is distinguish between... Questions where elections have consequences. You know, you may not disagree with the policy of the policies of this administration, um, but elections. Sh- one of the consequences of an election shouldn't be corruption, and shouldn't be uh, the regulated becoming the regulators, um, and that's what we're looking out for. So, a, a great example of how uh, incompetence actually may not be the only um, the only explanation here. It might actually be hyper-competence Is Scott Pruitt, where uh, we sued the EPA last year to get detailed copies of the administrator's um, calendars. And we worked uh, very closely to understand all his appointments. And what we revealed is that he had spent essentially all of his time meeting with representatives of industry who had wish lists from the epa and these are not you know i wish i didn't have to file a form that was 10 pages i'd like three pages it's we would like to continue using a pesticide that your scientists ha- will tell you causes cancer in Jeez, children wow. and th- and they did that um that is a uh it's a fundamental problem uh, i think it matters Um, And what we are hoping that we can do is, if the EPA is not going to sit down with environmentalists, it's not gonna sit down with local local communities and understand what they need, it's not gonna sit down with advocates for children's health, um, and they're only gonna listen to industry, well, at least what we can do is we can show that, and those people, the people who care about these issues can latch onto that and make their own case. I think uh, a transparency for this administration is one of the key solutions because uh, they get away with
0: a lot if you don't see it. And I know you all have been pushing t- on transparency, on health care, mm-hmm. on the tax bill. And obviously, we've got a ways to go. <laughs> Even though those, those <clears throat> policy fights may have be over for now, it's still important to shine a light on what the process was like.
2: Yeah, let me, let me tell you about that because we're pretty proud of this. Um, when we founded the organization, uh, we think uh, using the law uh, aggressively and creatively, and um, the, the FOIA statute lets you get documents out of the administration, but they can redact a bunch of stuff. It's private. If, if they're going back and forth on a decision, they can redact a lot. But if they communicate with an outsider, that uh, they lose most of those protections. You can't say it's private when you talk with an outsider. So we targeted communications between Congress and the administration over health care reform negotiations and tax reform negotiations to find out what Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell were saying to Mick Mulvaney and Steve Mnuchin about those bills behind the scenes because we didn't think that the talking points made any sense. Do you remember um, Mnuchin's one-page analysis yep. showing Hell that the tax yeah. – I think everyone gets a unicorn from the tax bill.
0: <laughs> um
2: so, uh, we didn't think that the emails going back and forth would, would bear those talking points out. The administration has mounted an insane legal argument to block us. They say that they can treat Congress like paid consultants, uh, and we are battling that in court. And I am really hopeful that sometime this year, we're going to pull those out and the policy fights might be over for now.
0: Well, look, I, I hope you get those documents because I think that level of transparency is critically important now of all times. Um, There are so many other questions that I want to ask you about, for instance, what happens if there's a Democratic House and what happens to your organization? But we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Uh, We have been having a wonderful conversation with Austin Evers, executive director at American Oversight. Please follow him on Twitter at WeAreOversight and take a look at their website. They're doing some fantastic work, and he's just teasing some of the great things to come. We'll be right back.
1: Bill's commentary. The best clips from the show, all in
0: one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hi, this is Chris Liu. I am guest hosting for Bill on a uh, kind of drizzly Friday in Washington, D.C. We've had kind of a really nice week of 80-degree weather. Uh, It's gotten remarkably cold again. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at ChrisLiu44 and Uh, Please feel free to like us, not me, but like The Bill Press Show on Facebook, facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. You can watch the streaming video on youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, and you can follow the show on BP Show. Um, And obviously there are uh, podcasts that you can download on iTunes, uh, and the highlights of the show are condensed uh, to 30 to 40 minutes
3: um, Can I just jump in for just a second here? I don't mean to, to, to hijack sure. anything. I hijack just, away. You know, I, I, as you know, as we as we do this show live in the morning, uh, we have the TVs on. And they're talking about the gun control debate right now. And Fox News has Mike Huckabee on and CNN has Dana Loesch on, who we know is a paid spokesperson for the NRA. Now, I believe that their voices are... Uh, somewhat important to the gun debate that we're currently having but are they the most important that we should put them on TV in the mornings? I don't think so. I don't I, think so.
0: I would rather hear Gabby Giffords, I'd rather hear Mike Bloomberg, I'd rather hear the parents of the victims yeah. at Parkland, I'd rather hear uh the, the 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 victims in Charleston and Utown and San Bernardino and every other place where this has tragically occurred um, in recent memory.
3: And, and, and by the way, you want you feel the need to have it, you know, both sides, get Republicans on. I understand that, right? How about just get some Republican elected officials on
0: there? And let's ask them the question. Are you going to continue taking money from the NRA? Do you think it's okay that we have uh, assault rifles that an 18-year-old can buy? Do you think uh, mental health is really the issue Uh, Do you think we should close the gun loophole? Let's have the gun show loophole. Let's have these conversations. Yeah.
3: And I, I do think, look, you want to have that conversation. You want to present both sides. That's fine. I mean, I'm obviously biased on this issue, right? But that's fine. Get somebody who can do something. I do think that with the NRA story, it's getting very, very, very interesting because people really are starting to boycott some of these companies. That have ties to the NRA. Now, two major companies, Enterprise has already backed off. You mentioned this in the last segment. And First National Bank of Omaha. They have ended co-branding partnerships. Which, by the way, why did you even enter into this partnership to begin with with the NRA? But I'll put that aside. They've dropped it, right? Because people now are starting this hashtag boycott NRA social media movement, and it's just picking up steam. There are—Enterprise, by the way, is the parent company of uh, Enterprise, obviously, Alamo and National. So you've seen all of them, at least in airports when you travel, right? Like you've seen these car companies. There are are a lot of other ones who still say not only are they partnered with the NRA, but they offer discounts to people who are NRA members— Uh, For example, there are companies that offer, quote, NRA member benefits. This is from the Washington Post this morning. They offer savings on credit cards, hearing aids, car rentals, travel, car purchases, prescription drugs, and other things. Now, why would it be that a private company would partner with a merchant of death like the NRA? Why would that be? (laughs) I just don't get it.
0: I just don't get it. You know, in our first guest this morning, Eugenio Weigand from the um, Center for American Progress gave the poll number that 97% of Americans support background checks. Yeah. Uh, 97% of the people don't support ice cream in this country. (laughs) That's right. Uh, You know, 97% (laughs) of the people don't support uh, sunshine uh, in this country. It is uh, remarkable to get that kind of uh, unanimous support or almost unanimous support around an issue. So um, it is... um, it's stunning. Yeah. Well, look, um, we have a very special guest um, today. Uh, I, um, this is, I, I've been very open all morning. This is my first time ever guest hosting anything. And I, I, and I wanted to get a special guest. I, I, I reached out to the Democratic National Committee. Um, some of my former Department of Labor colleagues are there. Um, thought one of them would come on. Did not realize I would get the chairman himself, Tom Perez, uh, welcome. Tom, Mr. Secretary, Mr. Chairman, uh, to the Bill Press Show. I am
4: so thrilled to be here with you, Chris. Uh, I love Bill. I love Chris. Uh, I love your listeners, and I'm thrilled to be here.
3: He's doing a great job, by the way, Chairman. He's done a great job so far this morning.
4: Bill, watch it. I, 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 I'm, I, Chris is taking curtain measurements. Bill, that's well, a problem. Well, as I was you better joking, be careful.
0: When when David Letterman came back to do his show. Um, recently, his first guest was Barack Obama, and Tom, you are my Barack Obama on my wow. first show, and, and, unless this is my last show, in which case,
4: uh, well, hold on though, I need I need to have a really, really yeah, you be beard, weird beard. That, yeah, <laughs> I think he was reenacting like a Civil War battle,
0: <laughs> or he's joining ZZ Top or yeah. something like yeah. that.
4: I, Fandango, baby, <laughs> Fandango. <laughs>
0: Well, look, um, uh, the chairman is here today. Um, he, I think, is two days shy of his one-year anniversary as chairman of the DNC. Uh, and I will, I will just say, one of the more remark. we have been talking to Twitter all morning. One of the most remarkable tweets I've ever seen was um, when Tom Perez was elected chairman of the DNC. Uh, Donald Trump tweeted, congratulations to Thomas Perez, who has just been named chairman of the DNC. I could not be happier for him or for the Republican Party. Uh, Tom's retort, which was masterful, was, call me Tom and don't get too happy. Keith Ellison and I and Democrats united across the country will be your worst nightmare. Um, (laughs) So one year into this, what's your assessment of where the DNC is now compared to when you took over?
4: Well, we're making a lot of progress, and and we're making a lot of progress because people are coming together around this country, Chris. They understand that uh, our democracy is on fire. And we need to be united because our unity is our greatest strength. And you look at Virginia and you look at New Jersey last November. How did we win those races? We came together, united around a set of very basic core principles. We believe that if you work a full-time job, you should live a stress-free life. We believe health care is a right for all and not a privilege for a few. We believe our immigrant history as a nation is what has always made America great. And we're going to continue to fight uh, for um, every person in every zip code. We're, we're the party of we, and the, the, the Republicans have always been the party of me. And I think when we fight for those things and when we organize, I mean, we, we stopped doing the basics as a Democratic Party, and it was a shame on us moment. We stopped organizing everywhere. Uh, we became all too transactional. And as a result of that, uh, we lost elections, and we lost elections that we should have won. And, and we've rededicated ourselves to the basic principle that Uh, Our mission is to elect Democrats up and down the ticket from the school board to the Oval Office. And again, we do that by organizing, organizing early, organizing everywhere, leading with our values, rebuilding our technology infrastructure so that we are once again uh, the state of the art. And we've been able to make progress in all of those areas. And the proof is in the pudding. We're winning elections. Uh, Won another election this past week in Kentucky. 37th? 37th flip. And we're winning in places where people said we couldn't win. Uh, four elections in Oklahoma uh, last year. And I was, in a, I was in Tulsa about a month ago. And I met the four uh, new members of the state legislature and state senate. Remarkable people. Why did they win? Number one, they're spectacular candidates. Number two, we helped invest in organizing. And number three, they talked about the issues that mattered most to people. In, in Oklahoma and Kansas, there are tens of thousands of people uh, youngsters who go to school four days a week. That's ludicrous. They go to school four days a week mm. because the in its infinite wisdom in Kansas, um, the former governor, Brownback, and in Oklahoma, the Republican leadership decided to cut, 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 cut taxes. And they have had to cut funding for public education, not to the bone, but through the bone. Imagine in today's world, a high school education is not enough for so many jobs of the future. And in Oklahoma and Kansas, they're going to school four days a week. That is unconscionable, and voters are seeing that, and Democrats are organizing around that, and that's why we were able to win elections there. Doug Jones in Alabama, and I've, I've, I've known Doug for over 20 years, and Doug is the real deal, and, and African-American voters, generally, African-American women in particular, Led that charge, and and Doug with his focus on uh, hashtag kitchen table. You know he didn't want to fight the culture wars. Right. He wants to improve people's wages. He wants to make sure they have access to healthcare. He wants to make sure that people uh, suffering with opioid addiction can uh, get the treatment they need. And 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 he wants to end the culture of corruption. Uh, Alabama, they had yeah. um, absolute you know power. Corrupts and absolute power in Alabama has corrupted absolutely. Their governor resigned in disgrace. Their um, house leader resigned in disgrace. And I mean- People, the, the, the Republican Party is morally bankrupt. When you put the likes of Roy Moore on the ticket and you, you have Joe Arpaio running in Arizona, and I took him on when I headed mm-hmm. up the Civil Rights Division. I'm, I'm glad he's the former sheriff. Um, there's part of me that kind of hopes he wins the primary, <laughs> i got to be honest with you, because he's a Roy Moore-like figure, somebody who uh, has no business being elected.
3: You know, you mentioned uh, Doug Jones. Uh, all my family's from Alabama. I watched that race very, very closely. Uh, one of the things that I took away from that, obviously there was a very flawed candidate in who he was running against, but Doug Jones ran as uh, unapologetically as a Democrat.
4: He sure did. And I I, I think the world of Doug, and, and people, frankly, uh, were wondering, you know, Tom— you know, are, you guys are investing upwards of a million dollars in this. Uh, it, it, does that make sense? And the answer is, heck yes. Yeah. You know, when when we abandoned the fifty state strategy as a Democratic Party, that was a that was a profound mistake, and that was a mistake that had the impact mm. of saying to African American voters in particular, um, we're not taking your vote seriously yeah. because you're saying the Mississippi and Alabama. Georgia and elsewhere. Um, you know, I'm sorry. You know, we'll go there to raise money, but we're not going to invest there. The
3: South used to have strong Democrats.
5: Well, and the and South
4: has back. small, de- strong Democrats. So we, we uh, helped elect the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha mm-hmm. Lance Bottoms. We have a real chance to take the governorship in Georgia this year. We've got a real shot in Alabama uh, to win uh, the governorship there. We've got candidates in Mississippi who are— remarkable people. The Attorney General of Mississippi is a guy named Jim Hood, a good Mm -hmm. Democrat. Uh, Jim Hood uh, in 2019 has a real shot at being the next governor of Mississippi should he decide to run. And so we're investing everywhere. And and you you mentioned uh, President Trump's tweet of a year ago. I have to say that one of my favorite tweets of 2017, and this, this may seem odd for your listeners, came from a guy named Steve Bannon. (laughs) <laughs> the day after the Alabama election, he said uh, something like this in his tweet uh, You got to give the devil its due, referring to the DNC. Uh, the DNC came in below the radar screen. They helped organize, they helped mobilize, and uh, they helped Doug Jones win. Uh, what do I always say? Ground game. And that's what they did. And he ended it again with uh, You got to give the devil its due. If he wants to call me the devil, I feel pretty good about myself, guys, because uh, I was proud of that investment. And we were below the radar screen because I've I've tried a lot of civil rights cases down in Alabama.
3: Steve Bannon calling you the devil. I guess it takes one to know one. Amen.
4: You know, I I, was the best compliment I could have got in 2017.
0: We are here with Tom Perez, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee, the former secretary of labor. You can follow him on Twitter at Tom Perez. Uh, Tom and I have crossed—our paths have crossed many times, uh, most notably when he was at the Department of Labor and he was the secretary and I was the deputy. It was an honor to serve under Tom, and it's great to have him here uh, as a guest on my first show. thank you.
4: Your listeners should know a little bit about you, though, Chris, because (laughs) when when Barack Obama uh, was—Senator Barack Obama, uh, he had an original team of folks who helped him build his office, who helped him build his— Brand, who helped him uh, get off the ground, and one of those folks was Chris Liu. And uh, nice. it was uh, uh, something that will always be an enduring part of, of your legacy, and I uh, thoroughly enjoyed uh, having you as a partner at the Labor Department. We did a lot of good things for a lot of good people, uh, raising wages, making sure that if you uh, are going to work at that construction site, you yep. weren't going to breathe silica that would kill you, or you're going to work at a coal mine. Uh, you weren't going to uh, have a death sentence. Uh, We were fighting for those basic rights. When you go to work, you should have a fundamental right to come home safe and sound, and you should frankly uh, have a fundamental right to uh, earn a decent wage that enables you to live a stress-free life. And that's what we're fighting for, and that's what we're yep. fighting for as Democrats, and yep. that's wait, what we so, got to keep
3: doing. Wait, so you're telling me that all these good job numbers that we've been saying are not purely because of <laughs> Donald Trump? <laughs> I'm
4: glad you were sitting down when you said that. <laughs> you know, my favorite Donald Trump uh, 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 claim was how uh, he has, uh, he took singular credit for the reduction in uh, the African American unemployment rate. Yeah. Yeah. This is a guy who has. Um, committed to uh, the continuing voter ID laws. This is a person who, um, in his private sector world, uh, was uh, not allowing African-Americans to uh, you know, purchase housing. There was a consent decree uh, with the Justice Department to try to take credit for that. That's like the rooster, you know, crowing in the morning and saying, uh, "Well, the sun came up because I crowed." Uh, and by the way, the month after he started claiming that African American unemployment up. went up by a percent, because so.
0: Tom and I know that these numbers are jumpy. And if you're going to own the uh, good numbers, you own the bad numbers as well. Numbers. Um, you talked. Briefly about the amount of money that the DNC put into Alabama. Money remains a challenge. Um, a good January fundraising month, mm-hmm. uh, but there's never enough money. Um, how do you how do you overcome this advantage that Republicans sure. to have?
4: And I, I think it's a, that's a great question. And, and let me give you a little bit of history of uh, DNC fundraising. The notion that Republicans outraised Democrats in a given year is a dog bites man story.
0: <laughs> it's like the sun coming um, up in the morning.
4: Right. And uh, I mean, there was Chris Collins, uh, the the congressman, the far Repu- right Republican congressman who's um, under an ethics cloud from uh, upstate New York, who said in connection with the tax bill, uh, we've got to pass this tax cut because my donors are telling me that they're not going to donate money anymore unless we pass this tax cut. Uh, here's here's the reality. Uh, we raised $67 million last year at the DNC. Uh, that was more than 2015, more than 2013, uh, both years, obviously, we mm-hmm. had uh, Barack Obama in the White House. It was more than 2007 and more than 2005. And I would note, back in 2005, uh, we were outraised by the RNC about two to one. And in 2006, we took over uh, the House of Representatives. And in 2005, yep. we—that was the last year that we won the uh, the Virginia mm-hmm. and New Jersey governors races in the same year. Right, and so. Uh, we, always, we almost always are outraised uh, by the RNC, and last year was no exception. Uh, what's remarkable about our $67 million for your listeners' benefit, is that two-thirds of it came from small-dollar uh, donations. The average online donation at the DNC was $21. One of our new people um, that we've brought on who's spectacular uh, is someone who did small-dollar fundraising for Senator Sanders. Senator Sanders did a spectacular job. Of small dollar fundraising, and we want to make sure we're doing the same. And so, um, I'm very proud of the fact that two thirds of our money came from that small dollar world. And and it's important to note that even though we outraised 2015 and 2013, the um, we were frankly shut down for the first third of last year because I walked into a DNC that had been very compromised. I mean, this is a turnaround job, and uh, we we had four people on our finance team. Uh, we were supposed to have 25. So I came into a skeleton crew. We had a major rebuilding project. And the the thing that gives me optimism is that we've been able to attract top flight talent. Our new chief technology officer was the 25th employee at Twitter. He built their back-end infrastructure. He is uh, someone who is doing the same thing at the DNC. And, and when you talk about places like Alabama, we were able not only to invest money to help Doug, But we were able to make use of our tech talent to help him uh, do his job best because we used to have the tech advantage and we squandered it because the Republicans um, beat us at our own game. And uh, the good news is that we've got a great team coming together. Our new chief cybersecurity officer was the chief cyber officer at Yahoo, so we're attacking, we're attracting um, top flight talent, and uh, and that's enabling us to win. Our new political and organizing director woman named Amanda Brown Learman. She worked for For Our Future, Tom uh, Steyer's group. Mm -hmm. And uh, she knows organizing. She's an Obama alum as well. And so uh, when you're trying to turn something around, uh, I'm a big believer that personnel is policy. You you get the right people on the bus, the bus can go a long way. And we've been able to win elections because I'm very proud of the people we have on the bus.
0: Uh, Tom, Trump has been tweeting a lot lately about how the enthusiasm gap is closing, uh, support for the tax bill is going up. What's your take on all that? We as Democrats look at polls way too much. We tend to be a little bedwetters when uh, the numbers don't go the way we want. Right. W- wh- where, do you, where do you see things right now in terms of public support, not only for the tax bill, but uh, for the president?
4: Well, listen, uh, you know, I look at elections. Those are the best bellwethers of where the public is. We had another election this week in Kentucky, special election. A seat held by a Republican that was won by a Democrat. You go um, Missouri a few weeks ago, same thing. A beat red Trump district, we won. Uh, you look at uh, you look at uh, uh, Wisconsin uh, state senate seat, we won that uh, roughly a month ago. So uh, I, I look at those numbers and it makes me feel good. You, you look at the tax cut. You know, if, if you have a dollar uh, in a tax cut and ninety nine cents goes to ultra rich people and wealthy corporations, and a penny goes to other people, is that fair? That's the question we should be asking. And by the way, that penny that people are getting is going to be offset because now they're going to want to cut Medicare. Now they're going to want to cut um, funding for basic services because they're saying we can't afford to do it anymore. And so we've got to be relentless in educating people that the Democratic Party is fighting for the issues that people care most about, fighting for health care, fighting for to um, make sure that if you work a full-time job, you can live a stress-free life. Our former employers at the Department of Labor, uh, they're trying to pass a regulation that would make it easier for restaurant owners to steal tips from workers uh, and put it in their own pocket. Um, That's not an administration that's fighting for average Americans.
0: Uh, Tom, we have about a minute left, but I always ask you this question when I see you. Are you having fun?
4: I like winning elections. And, uh, so I should and, talk to you, you the know, morning after
0: election day? It's, it's,
4: uh, I'll tell you, it's no fun to see um, dreamers suffer uh, and be hostages. It's no fun to see another mass shooting and to see the likes of uh, Rick Scott you know, with a sock in his mouth and, Bar- and, and um, Donald Trump talking about arming teachers. Yeah. Um, it's no fun to see people struggling with opioid addiction... And uh, being fearful that they're actually going to lose access to health care. That's no fun at all. And that's why I'm in this job, because the most important thing we can do to help everyday Americans um, hope and dream and live a better life is to win elections up and down the ballot. That's why a united Democratic Party leading with our values, uh, I think, is our best hope forward. And that's what we've been doing. And we're making progress. But we got a lot more to do.
0: Well, that's a great way to end my first show, guest hosting. Uh, I am Chris Liu. Uh, You can follow me on ChrisLiu44 on Twitter. Uh, We are so honored to have Tom Perez, chairman of the Democratic National Committee, uh, as my special guest. You can follow him at Tom Perez. I want to thank Peter, Ray, the entire team at the Bill Press Show. Nice job, buddy. For giving me this opportunity. And on Twitter, please say nice things about me. (laughs) This is the Bill Press Show.